This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 48. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 48 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. Now, my guest on this episode has over 25 years of experience as a professional wilderness survival instructor. Bruce Sowalski teaches survival courses, wildlife and bear awareness courses, as well as wilderness navigation. He's the author of A Guide to Canadian Wilderness Survival, published in 2017, and he has been a lifelong student of the wilderness and a committed wilderness educator following his college studies, which culminated in an epic 94-day, 3,600-kilometre canoe trip from Rocky Mountain House in Alberta to Thunder Bay on Lake Superior in Ontario. I had the pleasure of meeting with Bruce during my time in Canada for the 2019 Global Bushcraft Symposium and having since read his book I very much appreciate his attention to detail. So I was very keen to have Bruce on my podcast and to talk more about his background and his work. So without further ado then please enjoy this conversation with Bruce Zawalski. Well, today I am very pleased to say that I have Bruce Zawalski joining me on the Paul Kirtley podcast. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Hello, Paul. Uh, thank you very much for having me here uh, today. I'm, I've been looking forward to uh, talking to you on one of your podcasts. As you know, I listen to many of your podcasts. Well, thank you. No, it's an absolute pleasure to to have you. And, you know, we uh, we sort of had connected online in the past, but I guess we properly connected at the Global Bushcraft Symposium in Alberta in June 2019. And we were able to spend some quality time uh, chatting there and um, I thought it'd be really good to have you on the the podcast and I think initially what would be really useful particularly for people maybe listeners on this side of the pond but I, I guess just for anyone who's not familiar with your work because I, I have to say I was familiar with some of your work but I wasn't familiar with the extent of your work until we, we properly connected so I think it'd be really super useful just to give people an idea of of your background maybe a little sort of bio and then we can kind of use that as a jumping off point for for talking about the various aspects of of what you do because it's all really interesting absolutely paul so i guess like probably you know a lot of the people that get enthused in outdoor education i um i my family was always big into uh uh hiking and camping and being outdoors and being outdoors in some cases for a couple of times where we went out for the entire summer in the van and literally spent two months of the summer driving all over Canada, all especially in the north. And so I did that. I think I did my first backpacking trip. I was probably eight years old. The first time I went up Sunset Pass in northern Banff, I was also a cub, a scout, a venture and a rover. So I literally stayed in scouting until I joined the Army Reserve at 19. And um, so I, I, joined, I was an army reservist, and I still am. I'm in the Loyal Edmonton Regiment, so I'm an infantryman, and now a sergeant major for, I guess, the last decade and a half or something as an army reservist. So that's part of my background. Along with that, I am 
I actually took an outdoor education program. So I'm a professional outdoor educator. I went to the University of Alberta and um, went through a, an outdoor education program. At the time, they had a fairly extensive outdoor education program. So I actually specialized in what would have been um, a recreation administration. You could go in from two sides in that program, even though your core courses were the same, either from physical education and or uh, recreation administration. So I took recreation administration planning and we did a lot more, you know, uh, classes on teaching and things of, of that nature, along with the whole outdoor education program, which for us in, at the U of A at the time, accumulated in basically a two-year program at the end where you did a year of planning and then a year of basically trips and expeditions that you planned yourself called mm -hmm. explorations. And that program ran at the U of A for think about 20 years or so. So it was a fairly extensive program. We were about sort of maybe the last in the last two thirds of the years that they ran that program. So they ran it for another four or five years. And then uh, when I was done at the U of A, I um, did what they really asked us to do, which is their, their program was designed to teach you basic outdoor leadership, to teach you basic canoeing, backpacking, navigation, teaching skills and then they said if you wanted to get good in any particular area what you needed to do is then take that specific training with experts so i uh, immediately went out and um, became a, a a ski guide i went to the nordic ski institute and spent two months in the back country i went overseas with the army to northern norway for two months um, in winter to run around there and um really have a great time because there was, you know, there was nothing better than, than um, being, you know, north of uh, the 75th parallel um, on, on the Queen's dime. Mm. It was getting, paid, getting paid to do it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I did for a couple of years, basically back and forth. I, I would work for the army and then I would, you know, take a contract with them. And then I would come back and spend that money doing some kind of outdoor education course. So after I was done that, I worked for the, uh, uh, I, I did my ski guiding. Then I came back, worked for the army for a few months, did as many trips as I could. Then I uh, went and uh, became a, a scuba guide. So I, I was a scuba, scuba instructor, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to Paddy College on the West Coast of British Columbia in a, a little place called Sydney, British Columbia, which is basically the, the dock and the uh, ferry terminal for Victoria. Right. And so I went there. I spent three months there. And then, then I went just back and forth doing that, you know, working as a scuba instructor, trying to get a niche in outdoor education, find where I could teach. And um, over that time, I uh, eventually found that if I really wanted to get a company going, I needed to have enough money to survive the first few years because I saw that what was going on, you just didn't, you weren't making enough money in the first few years. So I actually went to work for a bank for two years in their IT department mm -hmm. and took all my vacation all those times to actually work month-long courses at the University of Alberta in their outdoor education program so I could actually work with Morris Kochansky, hmm. which was really a big bonus. And that was a really good time because we'd spend a month teaching and, you know, with Morris and some of the other instructors that they had there over their month-long courses, the courses they had taken, but then I was to turn around and start teaching in there. And I did that. And that would have been into about 1994 or so. And I went back, took one more university course at a, 
a university is actually part of the University of Alberta now, but at that point it was Augustana University, and they ran a month-long um, spring course like the U of A did, just maybe a little bit more intensive, and I think a little bit better run. And I went back and took that course a second time because they had an option of different credits to get some science credits. And then I um, founded my company in um, September of 1994. Right. And I've been doing that since then. And that's the Boreal Wilderness Institute. Correct. And originally, uh, there was two of us, myself and John Caldwell, um, who uh, was my original partner in the business. And he was actually uh, an ex-British para and uh, from um, uh, lived in uh, was born in Scotland and then immigrated to Canada. And I met him when I was helping out at the University of Alberta after when I was working at the at that bank. And I was still helping out um, with the explorations program and filling in. I filled in as one of their teaching instructors for uh, three or four months where the teaching instructor was off on a, a boat trip for four months. And so I filled in for there, and that's where I met John, and we started. We got together really well. We had a very similar backgrounds and different in some ways, but similar in sort of our philosophies and everything else. And um, that's how we did it. But unfortunately, after about two and a half years of uh, a boreal, he had a bow out because he just wasn't making enough money to feed the kids. Right, literally. right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think you're right to highlight that and i think it's you know there are various different cohorts of people that listen to these podcasts and some uh you know purely students of the subject other people maybe looking to make a living in bushcraft education or survival education or considering that move and i think it's always worth people going into that with their eyes open it's not uh, an easy or straightforward thing uh, to do and to make work and you know that's some somewhat specific to maybe outdoor education and we can talk about outdoor education and where that's going perhaps but also just small businesses you know it's it's is one of those things whether you're opening a coffee shop or a, a hairdressing salon or, or whatever you, you know you have to make it work and it's not easy so yeah i think people often look at what we do with somewhat rose-tinted glasses and i think it's right to highlight that it, it's hard particularly at the beginning well, it's actually interesting. In retrospect, we, I, I just had that uh, 30th anniversary of our uh, explorations canoe expedition. But one of the things we were talking about, because only of the six of us, only two of us are still in the outdoor education business, and myself and Jacqueline. And one of the things that sort of came up was we took one business course in our um, program. That was it. Well, they mm. gave us one business course in um, how to run an outdoor business. And we all laughed that we wish we had had like six of them. <laughs> done like an MBA, that's done an MBA or something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you weren't making a living, you didn't have a proper business plan. And I remember the first time as I was starting off, somebody was explaining that basically a third of your business is what you do, what you love. A third of it is administration, which most of us hate. <laughs> and a third of it is marketing and sales, which is usually the hardest part of what we do. But again, even if you did one of the two of the three, it wouldn't matter how good you were at instructing if no one shows up or if the administration falls apart, no one pays you or you don't work out your rates right or you don't understand what it is to make an actual living. Yep. Or just students get irritated with the booking process and they don't know where to go and your kit lists are rubbish and all of that stuff has to be 
squared away and, and, and tidy. Yeah. Or if you do enough long trips and you're gone. I remember having a lady complain that I had gone bankrupt because I wasn't returning her phone call, but I was actually on a 12-day field <laughs> trip. Yeah. And I had to explain, well, no, that's why I'm in the Boreal Wilderness Institute because I want to go to the Boreal Wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I haven't had anybody accuse me of being bankrupt or, or worry if I've gone bankrupt, but I did actually just recently have somebody who uh, contacted me on social media saying, oh, you've been quiet recently, Paul. Are you okay? And very similarly, I was on a two week canoe trip. But yeah. Yeah. But no, it's nice, it's nice to know you're missed, but equally it, it does, it is a bit of a head scratching moment when somebody's surprised that you're actually outdoors so <laughs> strange that you'd be outdoors yeah not but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but i, I guess it, it's it's interesting another thing that kind of struck me about your description of your your history there was that you really made a conscious effort to reinvest in your career you were taking those contracts with the with the army and then you were coming back and reinvesting it in more education um is that something that you wish you'd done more of or is that something that was a real strategy or did it just was it just something that because you were interested you happened to to say oh i've got the money i can go and do that course now yeah i mean i'm always been a big one for um i mean i guess you know that kaizen approach the idea of constant never-ending improvement mm-hmm. it's like I, I i i don't go through personally like even a week-long course in the woods where i don't learn something from the students around me and i'm always trying to learn new things and figure out stuff and improve whatever i'm doing and, and i don't think the world is sort of stagnant so you know even though like you know a lot of people say well bruce you know your mentor is morse I mean, really, you know, uh, I might have uh, really learned f- and have, ment- have have gotten mentorship from 30, 40, 50 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just can't, at least in my mind, I just can't stop that sort of process of learning, changing, upgrading. Is there a better way to do this? Can we do this a little neater? Is Can I wa- waste a little less energy doing something? And I also have that belief that you have to have a, even if you teach a very specific range of skills, which I do. I mean, I, I don't teach all of the skills that I have. There's certain things I think, this is good. I have a niche to teach it. It's worth it. That doesn't mean I don't want to get those skills mm-hmm. or have them or understand them. It's like mountain climbing, which I've never really been particularly in love with, uh, mostly because I hate to fall. And climbing is no big deal. The falling bothers me. <laughs> yeah. Hence why I did not become a parachutist. Anyway. Right. Um, that aside, I, that doesn't mean I wouldn't. I didn't go climbing. I don't go climbing, and I don't learn. I didn't learn all those skills, and I didn't do ski mountaineering and love ski mountaineering, right? Because there you only fall if you make a mistake. So that, right. I'm much easier on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting distinction, absolutely. And I think, again, you know, I, you may have seen this, but I, I've certainly seen it both in my own business, but also when I worked at in other outdoor education establishments that you you're offering a I don't know week-long program and you get somebody who comes along and thinks okay I'm going to do this week-long program and now I can be an instructor and I think one of the things that you exemplify and other people who've certainly got longevity in the industry uh, survival bushcraft primitive skills which however why do you want to catch the net is the people who've got longevity the people who really value 
learning things in depth and investing in their own skill set and they don't necessarily immediately as soon as they've seen something think oh I can teach this um, and I think that's an important message that we need to get out there for people who do aspire to doing what we do. Well yeah I mean one of the you know I uh, one of the things that happens is, is you you pick up a skill that doesn't actually mean you know how to teach that skill hmm. and that's one of the things I mean the U of A one of the uh, uh, instructors I worked with there where we were teaching basically volunteering to, as assistant teaching instructors in the labs was that we might have the skill but how do we present that skill and how do you present the skill to different audiences you know they, there's a you know, the Army does a really good job in the Canadian Army of teaching you method of instruction. But of all the method of instructions I learned along the way, going to Paddy College in Sydney, B.C. Was the, was the best. They were really good at trying to explain that, you know, you have all these different, I, like people come in just and don't learn the same. And they were very good at making sure that they might present the same material two or three different ways to make sure that you absolutely, when you got underwater, understood you had to keep breathing <laughs> and you had to do this and this and this so that you would not run into any trouble. Yeah. Uh, and so you're right. I mean, that's the teaching is a skill in itself. Absolutely. And that also takes refinement. I know if I think back to perhaps the way that I taught certain things, you know, a decade or 15 years ago, I kind of cringe a little bit at maybe how crude some of the ways that I would get things across or not be able to get things across as as well as I can do now but I guess to a certain extent that is that sort of reflective practice of thinking all the time of how do I how do I improve this and having the students that give you some feedback not always good sometimes I I don't understand what you're saying can you explain it in a different way and you actually come up with different ways of explaining it and for me it's interesting what you're saying about Paddy for many years before I worked in outdoor education full-time I studied jiu-jitsu and I ended up running a, a dojo and again it's very similar even with a physical skill like that that you can demonstrate different people learn in different ways a lot some people need a lot more explanation some people need to just go and do it some people need to do it a bit and then come back and see you do it again some people really need it breaking down into small segments and then you need to build it up other people can just kind of grasp the concept and then go away and work at it it's, it's really interesting how different people perceive and process information even with something that's very visual well yeah I, one of the things i've noticed is over time I can get, I, I've got a lot better over the you know few, last few decades of reading people's faces to understand if I have to re-explain something and if I don't have to re-explain them because they understand that. And that's the same in the field, whether classroom or field, you can very quickly figure out, did that concept come through or do I need to massage it or explain it or do something or ask some questions back in terms of what you what they think the idea that we're doing is? Mm-hmm. So, Bruce, maybe uh, what would be good is, I, I mean, I've got your website up here, boreal.net, and you've got survival courses, you've got navigation courses, and you've got several other things listed there. Can you talk a little bit about the survival training that you, you, you run and who it's for, and just to give us some sort of context? Because I guess some people might think it's military, other people might think it's something else. So could you give us a little bit of a, an idea about what it is you teach and why the people that you teach are interested? 
Okay, so I mean, I think I, I in a lot of ways, I sort of, you know, it is some some bit of a specialization, but basically, I run maybe would be by probably when you work out to be about five or six different survival courses. The key, most fundamental one that I teach is what is called the survival course seminar, and it's basically a one day classroom. And I base it on the fact that I want to make sure that before you walk into the wilderness, we've got a baseline of knowledge. And I find that in a lot of ways, a, a lot of people will build up a field skill, but not have the knowledge of why they did it or what they're doing or how this is going on. So I cover physiology and the um, psychology of survival. We deal with what clothing you really have to take, what, what makes that make sense, fire lighting, shelter building, signals, equipment you have to bring. But I like to get that baseline done. That's a survival course seminar. And then after that, we go out in the woods. So nowadays, I run uh, with our incredibly odd weather and everything else we're having in Alberta these days. In the summer, I generally run one-day courses. So a field session in the summer, basically one long day. And then in the winter, we'll do basically two to four-day um, uh, courses to get you trained up in winter survival. And that's really where the skill comes in. And one of the things I really like to do is take these people out for like three nights, four days, and make sure that they actually have the skills. So in those cases, they're really going out there and building shelters every day, collecting all the wood they would need, uh, learning skills like fire management, um, collecting water, doing the actual things they would do if they were really stranded. So I spend a lot less time doing bushcrafty skills that a lot of um, a lot of the companies might do and instead spend my time teaching them the actual skills of their stranded. And one of our big sort of um, specialties is teaching field workers, teaching people that are environmental technicians and surveyors and um, scientists people that will go out into the wilderness and are doing that as a work uh, in, in a work environment and have a really good chance because a helicopter drops them off and then just doesn't come back for them mm-hmm. or a vehicle breaks down somewhere and they're off like a, uh, a quad or a snowmobile breaks down and they're stuck. Yeah. So these and are, so- these are people that really could be depending upon what you're imparting to them in a, a very serious situation where life and limb could be at, at risk these aren't just people who are sort of interested from a leisure perspective. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And that's a big, big part of my market. And that's a lot of where the custom training I do in, in Northern Alberta, Saskatchewan and British Columbia is a big, big part of what I do. I'm, I'm going around whether flying in or driving in and teaching those people. I, I run those courses through my own, um, in my own classroom. And in there, then that brings in the general public, people that are enthusiastic about survival. They just want to learn people that want to teach scouts or um, cadets or uh, youth groups, people who want to get into the business of outdoor education. So I, you know, and that, that, that student body therefore is sort of a mix of that. I, I'm not specific to say, Hey, you have to be a field worker to take my courses at all. I just, that's the, the general um, sort of teaching that I do. And then the other thing that I will do a lot of is do even shorter um, survival courses where I will do what we call a vehicle survival seminar, which is basically three hours of the most fundamental skills if you get stranded somewhere. Mm-hmm. Because 
the most likely scenario in Canada is you're on some back road somewhere and your vehicle breaks down. But it's 40 below outside. Yeah. So you really can get in trouble and people do get killed. Yeah. And so that one is mostly the industry. And I teach that literally all over Canada. I was just in Toronto a few weeks ago teaching that course. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I often pair that with a wildlife awareness course because that's another one of our big problems compared to wandering around uh, rural England yep. is that we have a few things that might actually eat us. <laughs> if we're, um, uh, uh, we do stupid things, mostly stupid stuff to do it, right? We're fortunate in that. But wildlife awareness is a, so is a big part of the business that I do. And that, again, mostly is to industry. I, I Usually, I may teach that seminar three to about three or 400 students a year. Right. And literally right across the country. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things on your homepage there, wildlife and bear awareness. Do you think people take um, that too lightly? Generally, I noticed that you've, you know, you've got um, bear spray training amongst that. And, you know, buying bear spray is not that difficult in Canada. But do you think most people have got no idea how to use it properly? I would say I, I found that that's one of the things that you often get people's complaining that they, they it didn't work. But then when you actually read the description of what they did, they just didn't employ it right. Mm-hmm. But we do have a problem, and that's maybe a North American problem, that even if somebody is interested in bear spray, I think that in my YouTube videos, I, I, I did some videos on this because I wanted to, I needed one, basically I needed one class to show, and I, I didn't like the fact that most people were doing it incorrectly, and it was sort of all over the place. And I wanted to show the proper technique, so I filmed the video, and I show it in class and I put it on the, uh, on YouTube. And when I did it, I, I, I broke it up into three videos. So one on why wildlife and bear awareness is important sort of thing. And I, you know, literally a couple hundred people watch that one on the most important part, which is bear behavior, because if you understand how the bears are talking to you, you'll understand what trouble you're in or not in. And you can reduce the chance of any type of fatal encounter just by understanding the bear's language, like what the bear is saying to you. And that literally had 190 people watch it. <laughs> but my bear spray video on how to use bear spray is something over 15,000. Mm. So that's a kind of a scary thing. The actual bear spray itself, they all want to know how to use it. But literally 0.1% of the people who, were, who watched that also wanted to know how to avoid a bear encounter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And it goes back to the, the kit thing to my mind that it's a similar kind of thing that we always get where you you're showing a skill and somebody leaves a comment asking you what boots you're wearing or or something and it's like yeah it's it's the skills that are important and the understanding of how to light a match but instead you can just you know have nice boots yeah um you know the 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 understanding of the environment and how to interact with it and how to read its nuances is is the thing that's hardest to get across i think and the like this is the this this piece of kit this this, you know how to use the bear spray or these are the boots you want that seems to be the easily digestible thing for a lot of people yeah not sure how we get around that but uh I mean, yeah, you know, and I do notice that, that, that in the end, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll teach three or 400 people wildlife awareness and vehicle survival. I'll teach 50 or 60, you know, 
people out in the woods, you know, for wilderness survival every year. And probably only sadly 30 or 40 people will want to take um, navigation training and maybe only 15 or so will take my five day navigation training. Mm. And that's the way. And, you, and so you know how many people are really interested in going to the next step of taking a like a 28 day hike or a canoe trip. Yeah. It's going to be those people who want why they why do, why do they want to take five days of navigation because they really want to learn. Yeah, they want to be. And that's able to... a much much smaller percentage of the individuals. Yeah, it's a it's a small proportion, isn't it? Yeah, the people that actually want to go out and do it and be reliant upon their own skill set. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you guys have got black bears, but also grizzlies where you are, haven't you? Yeah, we in Alberta. There's black and grizzly bears. As you go up east, of course, to the you get to um, to into Manitoba, you'll get uh, polar bears and the new uh, what we call the nanoluk, which is like a hybrid bear, mm -hmm. and that's spreading as well throughout um, a lawn part of Manitoba uh, and Nunavut. That's and a we, that's a grizzly polar bear hybrid. hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. And it's starting to begin. Like we're when we're having those problems, we have the, a big problem in eastern Canada with koi wolf, which is a hybrid wolf coyote. Mm -hmm. Basically, fifty percent or sixty some percent wolf, or sixty uh, percent coyote, about twenty thirty percent wolf, and then um, the rest is dog. Right. And that's that's becoming a problem in in the a lot of the areas in the um, eastern Arctic. This new hybrid. Polar bear, grizzly bear is starting to be a problem because mm -hmm. anytime you you mix genes, you run into problems because the bear behavior isn't necessarily what you're expecting. Just like the suddenly what you expect a coyote to do, which is run off when he sees you, is maybe not what the new hybrid uh, wolf coyote will do. Mm. And and in what ways are that are those problems manifesting themselves at the moment? And clearly, there's got to be some serious sort of intermingling between domesticated dogs going on there as well right yeah and, and that's the i mean in the east especially where the koi wolves are getting bad the problem is you get a, a, a coyote which is just a small little dog right you know 20 kilograms yeah. you don't care about it you know he's hunting um mice and bolts yeah and picking at your garbage but coyotes will always come into your yards i get coyotes there's a farm in front of my house i you see i see coyotes there all the time yeah no problem where there's wolves, the coyotes stay um, stay small and hide because they don't compete against the wolf. Mm -hmm. Where you've killed your wolves out is the problem. Where the wolves have been killed, you get coyote packs. And in the east, where the wolves were really decimated badly and in a lot of cases wiped out. Um, Are you talking east of Canada or east of... Eastern, Eastern Canada, sorry. Right, yeah, yeah, just checking. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, so in Eastern Canada, so on t Southern Ontario, Southern Quebec, and into New Brunswick, mm -hmm. what you're, and in a lot of swath of the United States, which is where they came up on, out of what you have is wolves breeding with coyotes to avoid being wiped out. And the problem with that is, is you basically get a coyote that's twice its size and is... There, along with you know, often um, you know German shepherds and Doberman pinchers and some of the really big dogs that get into that gene pool as well, and what you end up with is um, a coyote that's twice his size and is aggressive and inherits from the coyote the ability to um, not be scared of humans. Right. 
So they'll wander in your yard, eat your pets, bother, rip through your garbage, bother you, etc. depending on what it is. And, you know, that's been a problem because it's not something that we're used to in terms of behavior. It's not proper behavior for a coyote. The proper mm. behavior for a coyote is he sees you and runs off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and what about bears in general? Because there there seems to be still, uh, you know, when you speak to people, some confusion. And the the reason I ask you is because you, you know, a lot of Canada, particularly kind of east of where you are, as long as you don't go into sort of northern Manitoba, you you're only really going to encounter black bears. Um, and even then, you're not going to see them. Like every single black bear I've ever seen, other than dump bears, just turns around and and runs away. Well- but then you, you've also got grizzlies not far from where you are, and there often seems to be some confusion about whether you do, whether you behave the same way with black bears and grizzlies, whether you behave differently, whether they behave in a similar way. What, what would your advice there be? Well, it's, it's different depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. It has a lot to do with the uh, numbers. A good example is you, like me, canoe in the, in the Canadian Shield all the time. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in Shield country where we have small, scrawny little black bears that hardly ever bother you and seem to run off immediately. And so that's not bad. I don't mind that. The best bear encounters I have is when I see the back end of the bear running off. Absolutely. And with a lot of the black bears, that's what they'll do. But in certain areas, you'll get more food. And the mountains tend to channel the bears. So the bears are a lot like us. They're pretty lazy. They like to stay on the trails. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we'll get we'll get more bear encounters because the bears will be walking on the same trails and cut lines and roads that we're walking on. Mm-hmm. So we'll run into more of them. And the areas that the food is really, really good, we'll get bigger bears. Mm-hmm. So that's just the way it is. So in the area that I do most of my survival camping in and everything else, we're technically in grizzly country, but we almost never see grizzlies at all. What we're looking at, what we normally just see is black bears. As you get in the mountains and you get farther north in Alberta, we get more grizzlies and you get more problems with them in terms of the fact that they're just a bigger bear. Mm. But a lot of the cases, bear behavior isn't really that much different. The the problem would be, for example, if you run into a black bear mother with cubs, she Mm. will try. She may attack you to protect her cubs, but she will rarely do anything than swat you around a few times. That's why playing dead still works because most of the time she'll swat you a few times, maybe bite you, and then leave you alone. And she really just wants to protect her cubs. And once she knows her cubs are all right, the encounter's done. Mm-hmm. Grizzly bear mothers are way bigger, much more aggressive, and they may decide, or she may decide, that the way to solve the problem is to kill you to make sure you don't cause any more problems to her cubs in the future. And also, they're much more powerful, so they may swat you and hurt you very seriously in the way that a black bear, which is a much smaller bear, won't have that ability. They're much more muscular, they're tougher. When they bite, they they, they bite with a huge amount more force, so they're going to cause a lot more damage to you. Mm. You know, and so either a grizzly bear may be less likely to attack you. But the end result is really, really bad. And most of our bear encounters sadly come from people out fishing or hunting where they attract the bear because of the smell of the animal uh, that they hunted or fished, along with some cases really bad luck, right? You're mountain biking through the mountains and 
you're going really, really fast, and the bear is on the um, trail that you're on, and you run into the bear. Mm. Yeah, that's just statistics then, isn't it? It's just wrong place, wrong time. Right, and, you know, we don't have a... I mean, you know, when you think about being killed by bears, we only, um, you know, on average, 1.2 people a year. Yeah. Right? You know, moose always scare me more because the moose is big and dumb. <laughs> And so I'm, I, a bull moose is just, you just want to take, be more leery of these animals. And that's where we have a lot of our, you know, problems, moose and elk and things where we have tourists and, who p- walk right up to these animals. Yeah. You know, and they get it. And I think the moose attacks as many people as bear and wolves combined in a given year, or be, bear, sorry, bear and the cougars combined in a given year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's before, and that's... the moose doesn't kill very many people. No, no, no. No, but that's before we start thinking about them being on the road as well, isn't it? You know, if you oh, that's just yeah, that doesn't count the the accident no. rate we have on our highways. That's yeah. totally you know, totally different statistic in terms of that's we're talking about people walking through the woods or wandering through a mountain town or whatever. Yeah, just having a sort of eye to eye contact on the ground with it type of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 interesting, you know, because one of the things you know when I come across Canada to do a canoe trip people say oh you know aren't you worried about being in bear country or being in wolf country and I'm like no not really you know I'll be sensible but you know I'm more worried about the taxi driver in town you know or the you know the the four-hour shuttle drive at the end of the trip with a guy who's driven six hours to pick you up that's the most dangerous part of the trip it's not (laughs) well yeah you know statistically that's where you're gonna most likely be injured you know when i teach like a three and a half hours of you know wildlife awareness course although we include bear spray and you know probably an hour and a half of, of of bear awareness and just going through it in real detail all of the de- all the other things like hantavirus and dealing with um, uh, all of our rodents and all of those other problems are the real problems because I've lost more gear to um, mice and squirrels and uh, ground squirrels and stuff and yeah. food and everything than ever to bears. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, Over the years, they destroyed gear. Uh, ate, ate through one of my life jackets, put a hole in one of my life jackets I chucked under my canoe. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, yeah. You know, like so, you learn that stuff over time. Suddenly, that you know, in the shield, I'm much more worried about making sure all our food is completely sealed up, and you know, the smell is down. And I'm not nearly as much worried about the bears in in that area as I'm worried about some rodent coming in and eating my food or destroying it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and 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 that's exactly the same for us. You know, in in the UK, while we might not have bears and and wolves. We've got plenty of wood mice and squirrels and rats even in some places. You know, rats are a native, you know, there are native rats around and they do live out in the people sort of often associate them with sewers and, and urban environments. But there are rats around in the countryside as well. And yeah, you will get things chewed up. You know, I've I've had for no apparent reason, you know, not that there was any food in there, but I've had holes chewed in jackets um i had a a a throw bag um that was under my canoe chewed through the bag of the throw bag for there was no food there there never had been any food there and i I sometimes think they take some of those fibrous materials for net or they experiment with it for nesting materials but yeah i also know of people who've had the really quite expensive tents chewed through because they've had a a bag of nuts or something in the vestibule and 
Yeah. Um, and that's actually the interesting thing. The gain we've had by having bears is mm-hmm. we, 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 the, the, most of the time what we're doing is we end up protecting our gear from rodents really at the same time. Yeah. Because we're taking our gear off. We're saying, hey, all this stuff like our toothpaste and all this, that's part of our food. Put that with that. Hang it up in the backcountry. Put it in your barrels, canoeing, and seal it up. And therefore, it's not sitting around waiting for somebody to come and eat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's good practice anyway, isn't it? Just to be just to be careful because uh, all that expensive gear gets uh, protected, as you say. Absolutely. So um, you got a lot of your information and distilled it down and, and put it in a in a book, which I think is a very good book. Bruce um you kindly uh, gave me a copy when I was in Canada in in June this year Canadian Wilderness Survival Stop and Survive and it's pretty comprehensive and one of the things that really resonated with me Bruce was just the level of detail that you go into I really like the fact you don't just say carry some matches carry a lighter carry a you know a ferro rod or a Swedish fire steel whatever you want to call it you actually go into a lot of detail about okay this this type of match is better than this. This type of striker is better than this. This type of lighter is better than this type of lighter. And these are the reasons why. And you, you're similarly diligent and detailed with your, the, 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 the physiology and the psychology and the shelter craft and, and everything. Um, how, is, how has the response to the book been so far? Well, I mean, so far it's been quite good, especially in like when I work in the, uh, in, in the north. So, Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, the areas I work, especially in British Columbia and Alberta, it's been really, really good. Beyond that area, it's a little slower to come out in terms of um, locations and stuff. I, I got a lot of really good reviews in, in Alberta and, and uh, areas where the, in, in, into uh, northern uh, British Columbia where you know people knew they needed the skills. So that's one of the things I find that if I go in some place and if you have a reasonable knowledge of the outdoors and you look at the book, you go, wow, that's actually got a bunch of stuff I can learn. Mm-hmm. We forget sometimes that the basic knowledge is important skills. And, you know, one of the uh, things I talk about is teaching uh, grade nine students for a number of years where we take them out for a two day um, survival camp. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting thing was the very first time I had it, I had one student who had never lit in a match. And I was shocked, like, you know, you're in grade nine. You have to have lit a match. What, what age would grade nine students be? Uh, I guess maybe 12 or 13. Right. 14, somewhere, 13, 14-year-olds. They were, yeah, they're just, you know, in that case, we're, when we, in Alberta, we break it up into elementary and junior high school, and junior high school goes to grade nine. And then so they'd be like, yeah, maybe I'd be like 13-ish. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, teenagers, you know, just about to go into high school and three years later they'll be out in the workforce, right? Right. Or four years later after that. And um, these people, you know, it was one. And then every year that group, that number would grow. So by the time I'd done 10 years, it would often be four or five of them who had never lit a match. And that scared me a lot because it was, you know, I don't encounter that if I go teach in northern Alberta. But in Edmonton, I was getting it. It was just getting bigger and bigger every year as we get more and more urbanized and people, you know, and it was sort of a safety thing. And I said, well, what, who lights the candles if you have a birthday? Oh, my mother would do that. You know, and so real basic skills weren't being taught. And that's what I learned that you got to start from the beginning and you can't assume that people have these skills, that they all know this stuff before they go. You know, you got to talk about it and, 
you know, the reason why people take 17 matches to light a fire is because they're trying to break the laws of physics with the match. Mm. You know, they're trying to move it around and do all these things that, that anyone who had been trained, this is what you do at a young age, would know by the time they got up there. Right? You know, this was stuff I did in Cubs. Yeah. Because when I was in Cubs in the 19, early 1970s, like, that's where they trained you because they assumed you needed to know or you'd never get to scouts. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, there are fewer, it's exactly the same here. And I remember a, a friend of mine recounting a story a number of years ago. For a while, he was um, living in the Lake District and um, his wife's family had some land up there and they decided that they would start this um, glamping business with yurts. And so they had these nice yurts made and, you know, the sort of wooden flooring and, you know, the, the, the canvas sides with the kind of wool uh, felt lining to make to insulate them. And they had a little wood burning stove inside and they would get groups of people coming up to stay in these yurts and beautiful location but i remember the number of times that he had to show people how to light a stove you know just basics you know this is how you use a match um and there was one group of 30 year old guys he had um i can't remember how many but it was uh, it was kind of a stag weekend it was a bucks weekend and they were all coming up doing different outdoor activities and staying at this at this glamping camping site. None of them knew how to light a fire. None of them knew how to light a stove. And he had to show them how to basically prepare the kindling, light the match, light the stove and, and get it going. And this is a group of 30-year-old men. Oh, yeah. Quite incredible. No, uh, yeah. We, we have that sort of thing that people have these skills. And, you know, um, I, I, I find more and more and more that there's pieces of that skill mix missing that we assume they know. And mm -hmm. I have this all the time using with my uh, military recruits where we, you know, people made assumptions that, well, you're a Canadian boy and you should know all this stuff or girl in our case, 10% of our soldiers are, are women, 10, 15%. Mm -hmm. But the assumption that they know all these basic skills, like how to use matches, lighters, how to build a shelter doesn't exist. We have to teach them. And, you know, every so often you'll find one or two that know, which is good. Yeah. But don't make that assumption anymore that they do know that. No. No, no, no. I mean, I guess, I guess, part of it is is urbanization. Part of it as well is that so many more houses now. I mean, when I was growing up, the the house that we lived in, there was no central heating. It had fireplaces, you know, or or a stove, you know. So you you were around, you know, fires being lit even in the home scenario. Whereas that's much less common now. I think. Oh yeah, no, no, and you know, you know, wood stove management. Is, is a skill that has to be taught like like lighting it and everything that goes with that just like fire management it's nice to say oh burn the logs all night long <laughs> but that's different than what actual fire management is and you can't learn those kind of skills in one night in, in a real sense because you know you need to have you know good bad weather you need to have a little you need to have that time you need to sort it out so you get enough sleep because a lot of fire management is the fire management required to get a decent sleep. If mm. you want to be miserable, then you don't need to know fire management very well, I guess. No. Personally, I don't like to be miserable when I'm out in the woods. No, it's best best not to be. So what would your top tips be for, for fire management to get a reasonable sleep? Well, I guess the, the, well, I usually use something what I call the rule of two. And that is that one log needs a friend. So when you put logs on, you put two logs of equal size on at a time. 
And that's got to be the biggest thing. It just seems simple. Mm. But I've seen people throw a big log on a little log. It's not going to work. One will burn out. The other one will be half done. And then the fire will be all out and, and annoying with a big dead log in the middle. And so it goes back to those skills. You put those on. And, you know, if you, if you want to do a rotation, you have two people, of course, that's always going to be a better life. If there's two of you standing together, one on either side of the fire, you're way better off. And then what will happen is you'll get up, you'll put two logs on, you put one log in front of the other person's shelter, one log in front of yours, you go back to bed in an hour or two when those those logs, depending on how big they are, have burnt out. All you do is just open the front of your shelter and roll the, the other two logs into the fire and go to bed. And the other person gets up in a couple hours, puts two logs on the fire, puts one on either side. You get up half as much. You get way more sleep. If you're only up for a minute or two on a, uh, what I find is you generally, you just roll the log in, go back to bed. You can get back to sleep really easy. If you have to get up and walk around outside and put logs on and do all that, you tend to be awake for a while. Yeah. So it disrupts your whole sleep pattern. And that's one of the things of learning that, yeah, and, you know, trying to make sure your fire pit works well and your fire design works well enough that you get that two hours of sleep. That's the, the real push. Like, as you get too far north, eventually our logs get too small and you can't do it, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're down to one hour. And even there, then it becomes that rule of two becomes even more important. Yeah, that, that's one thing that I've noticed as a, as a contrast between similar latitudes of the boreal in Canada um, or even lower latitudes and Scandinavia is that you will get bigger trees and it's different species but similar environments you know finding a bigger log in northern Sweden you know big dead standing uh, Scots pine for example is easier than finding uh, something of a similar size in Alberta, for example, or uh, Manitoba or northern Ontario. And yeah, I mean, you, you've got colder conditions further north. Even though you've got more daylight, it seems to have more of an effect in terms of the trees being a little bit smaller for the same latitude. Oh, yeah. Like I, you know, having um, ran around for a month and a bit in north of the 75th parallel in Norway, those areas, the trees that we had were basically at that latitude were equivalent to what you would see here at like the 50th or 55th parallel. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. You can really, and you can know, I mean, on our angles a little bit, like it's on a weird angle. So depending on where you are and what you'll get as you go North, but it's, um, yeah, it it kind of cuts, cuts up sort of quite a a diagonal, doesn't it? The the tree line. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly once you you get, once you get West of Hudson's Bay. Yeah. Yeah, so I've noticed that I've been in areas in northern Saskatchewan that were far worse off than that same equivalent in Alberta or BC. You know, you can and you can really tell the difference. You know, when you're getting up at a high latitude or you know getting closer to tree line, there you can you go okay, it's the same forest as such, but suddenly the the, the search for wood might take you three or four hours mm. in what I could do in a half an hour you know, in an area west of where we were for the Global Bushcraft Symposium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So just more small stuff and be prepared to wake up a bit more regularly then, I guess. is. Yeah. yeah. And that's also where back to, you know, cooperation and effort like that, you know, like you may be, you know, you may decide that you're going to sleep in shifts or something and, you know, whatever you need to do to, to, to make that work because, you know, that cooperation is going to make a huge difference to how well you live. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you, you mentioned that two hour sleep cycle and that seems to be the key, doesn't it? If you can get blocks of around two hours, it makes a big difference. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the difference between, and you know, you don't get that. Over time, you'll become a, a physical wreck. And yeah, you'll be miserable. Mm. Right. And, and those guys who can't get to sleep or sleep miserably or because they're all just cold and, you know, shaking or whatever, instead of being comfortable, it's going to make a big difference, like a good shelter compared to a poor shelter. You know, and some of it may be weather. I'm not, you know, there's times that I was on the east coast of Canada and squalls would come in on the off the coast and the rain would just go sideways. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, well, you better have a, a good bivy bag and a good shelter and, um, you know, just hunker down because there was nothing else to do. Yeah. No, that, that, that horizontal rain is something we're very familiar with in the UK. Oh, yes. <laughs> we're so familiar, I am certain. <laughs> Certainly on the west side of the country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, both on the front cover of your book, Bruce, and looking at the Boreal Wilderness Institute website for the survival courses, there's a certain type of shelter, the um, I guess so-called super shelter, or at least it's based on the on the super shelter. That's not so familiar to a lot of people over here. Well, I think with the internet, it's becoming more familiar. Can you, can you describe that a little bit and why it yeah. works so well? So, well, it's, it was the brainchild of Morse Kochansky, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts. So some people call it the Kochansky super shelter. I just, you know, he always called it the super shelter. I got no problems with it. And it often gets people mixed up because I've seen people lay up a sheet of plastic in front of their shelter and tell me it's a super shelter, which, of course, was totally wrong. You know, the idea of the super shelter and in a lot of conditions, you don't need that good a shelter. So this is one of the problems. It's really designed for winter and it's designed to be for cold conditions. Mm -hmm. And it can be built with a raised bed or without a raised bed. Morris always liked raised beds, but uh, one of the things I found is when I started to teach into the real boonies is the effort to make the raised bed wasn't worth it. And if you built the super shelter right, you didn't need the raised bed. Right. There's a nice little picture in there. It's tw in the book where it's it's 20 below Celsius and 27 above inside the shelter. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not a problem. And so what basically it is, is the super shelter is effectively a greenhouse. And that is really where the concept works. So if you have the right ingredients, it, as in materials to make that go, it's really, really good. So what you do is you, the best of it is to build a frame with saplings. So whatever kind of saplings you can find, it doesn't really matter. You know, birch, alder, uh, willow, whatever you have. That, 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 that part of it is, you, and, and that's like a sapling shelter, except it's a half a shelter or be like a quarter of an orange if you think in terms of the design for a one person and you'd lay it parallel to your fire. So that would be the one person super shelter, a single super shelter. Mm -hmm. And then you cover it uh, except for the front with parachute. And so parachute is the secret ingredient to it really. And that's where people don't understand. I've seen people tell me, Oh, that shelter would be horrible because it would fog up or, you know, you'd have um, condensation inside while well, parachute breathes, right? It right. stops 80% of its direct rain, but it breathes. So effectively what happens is you set that up and then what it will do is once the shelter is working, it will allow air to come in and it will push the vapor moisture on your body and your equipment out the back with a fire going. Mm -hmm. Then at the top of it inside, we would normally, if you have it, you'd put a reflective blanket. And the reflective blanket is one of those things that's sort of misunderstood. And matter of fact, I, I, I had long talks with Morris about this over the years and 
what happened with the reflector blankets or then in the 70s and 80s were always called space blankets because that's they were the biggest 3m was the biggest producer of them they were the guys who sort of invented the idea what they uh what people were doing is was take everyone wanted to take them in their survival kits and they because they thought it was a blanket yeah and morris looked at it and said well this is useless you can't do that that's not going to help you it's a plastic bag but what he found of course was that the one thing that would reflect is not direct heat. Direct heat's going to go straight through. But what it will reflect is, is light. And of course, as one would know, if you've seen a human under a sco- an infrared scope, as I have in the military, you do produce a little bit of infrared. And that re- infrared is, part, is, is heat in the light spectrum, so it will reflect as well. Mm-hmm. So you'll get that back. Unfortunately, the human body doesn't produce enough infrared to be of any value. Effectively, you can't sue the manufacturer of the blanket by telling you know, say it reflects body heat because it technically reflects, you know, what you're, you're one percent more than wrapping yourself in a garbage bag. Yeah. Yeah. You know, who cares? What it really, though, is if you can build it in the top of your shelter with a big fire and, it, and it's close enough, it reflects back on you. Putting it as a reflector blanket behind your fire won't make a difference enough to for us to care. But inside the shelter, it works really, really well. And so as long as you only cover half of the inside of your shelter with a space blanket or a reflector blanket, it'll reflect back. And then you take the plastic. And one of the things that's interesting is the super lightweight plastics that we have now work better than any things I trained with or learned from because that plastic was way worse. And the really nice thin plastic you just put in the entire front of the shelter, put a large log to hold it down. And then you bring it back, and on the single shelter, basically you take the plastic back, wrap it around the sides of the shelter so it seals it up, and then tie it back like you tie a tent fly. And I got a bunch of pictures in the book showing like four or five different ways to do it, depending if I have high, heavy snow or trees or logs or rocks or anything around to tie it to. And what happens is the back of the shelter, the, the plastic becomes a tent fly. So it can rain on you and it does not make a difference. You get freezing rain in the middle of winter, it doesn't make a difference. The air will circulate out the back. And then the plastic in the front is really where the second piece of magic along with the parachute is. Because that plastic is so thin, it has no effective mass. And therefore it won't, with the air circulating on both sides, it will never melt as long as it's properly one pace away. Hmm. So tip your toe to the back of your heel. As long as you do it one pace away from your fire, you can have a roaring fire, super hot, no problem at all. You will get no smoke and you will get no sparks. Sparks yeah. just touch. Maybe you get a little spark burn if, it, if the wind turns, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And effectively, you can sit in the shelter, no sleeping bag. And I've done it to like 46 below zero. No sleeping bag, quite comfortable inside the shelter. And yeah. you're, you just sit, you uh, basically within an hour, I've, I've dried all my gear, taken my duffels, boots, uh, hat, gloves off, dried them all, put them all back on or whatever. And you can just sit inside this um, shelter. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's too warm even to have my jacket or park on. Mm-hmm. And if you're not making a raised bed, are you putting spruce boughs down? Oh, or yeah. Just something like that? You'd have a, you have to have a proper mattress, whether it's a raised bed or not, really. So mm-hmm. normally you're talking about a four-finger bow bed, right. which is a really hefty bow bed. Now, if you have some stuff like your backpack, which is going to be foam, you could supplement it with those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I might lie on my jacket or park or whatever, add that in. But I always have to have a really good bow bed. You can't get away without a bow bed. 
you know, so you know that part of the activity you're going to do is after you build your shelter, you build a bow bed inside the shelter. Yeah, yeah. And there's some, there, there are multiple good uh, examples and variations in your book, as you say. Um, and yeah, it's all very, it's all very detailed, which I think is one of the great things about about the book. But the, if people are interested in a, in a, a, a sort of directly viewing an example of what we're seeing, the survival courses sort of quadrant of your homepage shows a pretty decent example of two opposite each other, as far as I can see. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's actually up in northern Saskatchewan. So yeah, I think the one on the left is actually the one I lived in. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's it's interesting. So, in terms of your sort of survival pack, as it were, are you recommending people pack those items like a bit of bit of parachute? Is that what you would recommend people take oh. with them as an emergency shelter, or is this more for people who might be, you know, Air Force or or what have you that are carrying? Oh. Yeah, no, no. I basically in spring, summer, and fall, I carry a, a silk poncho, so a lightweight poncho, mm-hmm. because if it's nice weather or whatever, I just need to get out of the rain, right? That's mm-hmm. what I do. And generally, in that pack, I will pack in a very, very compact piece of plastic and some twine and a, a reflector blanket. I put that right in the bottom of my pack and I leave it there for the year. Mm-hmm. And the only real difference is, so I carry that around with me all the time. So I have the plastic in case, because anytime I can put plastic in front of a shelter, I can have a fire and be comfortable. And it gives me an emergency shelter if in case I lose the poncho or something like that. Yeah. Or I'm using. yeah. And then what I do in winter, I will pull out the poncho and put in a parachute right. in a bag. Mm-hmm. That's how I'm doing it when I'm walking around. If in winter, sometimes I may, depending if I have to take a bigger pack or something, I may just drop in a complete super shelter, basically, the four pieces you need. Mm-hmm. And but I consider it a winter shelter. Yeah. In other words, however nice it would be, you wouldn't need that in summer. You're going to cook. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, 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 there's just no value to it in that end. you know. And um, a lot of times, we'll, if we have those materials in summer, we turn the whole thing around because we don't need a fire other than for morale and often we'll use the parachute in the front to keep out the mosquitoes right right so you carry is it a full parachute or is it just a sec- no. section of a cargo parachute or something yeah it's a section of a parachute and as a matter of fact there's a little diagram in the book in there talking about how you um cut them up but i basically when i buy a parachute i don't buy a parachute surplus i use a soldering iron like it would be not like a uh, like a soldering iron for doing like little soldering but it's for um automotive soldering iron and that way when you slice the parachute up and we, we do it in like basically um uh triangles you can slice it up down an edge and it basically cauterizes it so it won't um fray yeah instead of cutting it you can cut it with scissors or a knife or whatever it's just eventually it'll fray yeah and i like to treat it a little bit better and so what i'll do is i'll when i get a new parachute i'll chop it up so matter of fact, if you're looking on the website, you see those orange ones. That's the last parachute I had, I bought that I have, you know, chopped up. Right. And, um, you know, they're they're really small. It, it, they weigh, like the parachute pieces on those orange ones probably weigh less than a kilogram. So the whole shelter is about a kilogram. Yeah. 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 I mean, we use we use cargo parachutes as sort of a group sort of teaching area as a, on a regular basis. And they don't they don't really weigh very much at all no, and, they, and they no. are surprising people are always surprised at how much water they don't let through even in quite heavy rain oh 
yeah. Well, I mean, you would have seen mine. I mean, that was the, the one at Camp Kuchansky is one of my two cargo shoots. Right. And, and the um, uh, the Global Bushcraft Symposium. So, okay. yeah, they work well. I like them. But I, uh, as a, a lightweight shelter in winter, they're fantastic. Yeah. And I've often used it just by setting up the parachute. And then we talk, I think I was in there where I talk about needing to provide shelters where I just throw the parachute up. Because if it's going to just rain or snow on you and wind, the parachute actually works quite well. Yeah, and some of the old air crew survival books had that type of thing in, didn't they? Where you just used a parachute to to create a, um, a shelter. Right, because you, of course, if you just dropped out of the sky with your parachute, yeah. you might as well take advantage of yeah. it. Yeah, there's a... There's a book I'm thinking of, and I think it's just called something like Arctic Survival, and it's a little pamphlet, but I remember a, a picture in there where there's a winter shelter made with basically just a parachute and then augmented a little bit. Yeah, yeah um, you know, um, they. Uh, I know that that, that was um, talked about in even in Stephenson's Arctic Manual, mm. right? And then Down But Not Out, which is the big the Canadian Royal Canadian Air Force manual that they came out in the 60s. They have that where they talk about that extensively because that was the one material you could use. And if you had a full parachute, you might be able to put that parachute down two or three or four times, right, thickness. And so every if every time it stopped 80% of the direct rain, you if you put four levels of pa- four lines of parachute on, there's no rain that's going to come through at all. Yeah, and it also starts trapping some air as well, doesn't it? So, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I, I remember building like teepee shelters where – we, what we did is we built the teepee and then we lined the bottom two thirds with parachute and then we put the plastic on top of it. Because, mm-hmm. of course, we have like, you know, uh, uh, buffalo skins, strangely enough. Um, you know, there's not a ready supply of those in Alberta anymore. <laughs> no. So we used plastic. And what the parachute on the inside did was if you got any condensation that would drip down, it would drip down onto the parachute. Yeah. And so you wouldn't get wet inside. Mm-hmm. And that works really well whether you use it without a fire in the middle or where uh, most of them where we just bring a wood stove in and then you put a wood stove in a modify one side of the uh, of the teepee a little bit and then it's a quite comfortable group shelter it's a lot so, more it's a lot more pleasant on your eyes and your lungs as well isn't it having a little stove in there than a fire oh, yeah wood stoves are your friend yeah <laughs> uh, you know if you've lived in a tent and or being out you know and just in terms of effort, like the, the, the wood stove, you get so much more heat out of that out of that wood. That's the difference. Like we lose, you know, in a fire, you're probably losing 75% of the heat. But in a wood stove, you're keeping, you're probably keeping 75% of the heat and only losing 25% up the stack. Yeah, yeah. And even that, even that simple thing with a fire, as as is uh, illustrated on your website and in your shelter section, you know, particularly in the, the uh, page two hundred three of your book there, where you've got the, you know, the one pace, one pace, half a pace for the fire, and the shelter either side of the fire, you're getting double the benefit there, aren't you? If you've got two people, by just, but you're still losing a lot of heat to the environment. You know, it's just one oh, of the yeah. facts I mean, of life it, of the fire. It's all going up, whether you like it or not. Mm. Matter, yeah. And then that's really nothing you can do about that. I mean, the only way to do it would be to harness it by having a wood stove yeah. and building that shelter. And then you're really, you're, you're, you're now talking about a different kind of shelter effectively. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not really a survival shelter, is it? So. Well, no, you know, unless you happen to get, get lost with a wood stove, which is <laughs> unlikely, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you could have a tent fire. You could have a tent fire in your normal tent 
I've not heard of that happening very much these days because of the 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 treatments that get put on canvas and what have you. But I guess there's a possibility that in the past that might have been relevant. You could end up with a stove and no tent. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, sad, but true. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no, I mean, that's a, I've only ever seen one tent burn down in my years, and it was, uh, fortunately, had nothing to do with it. So I wasn't in it or anywhere near it. Mm -hmm. And nor was any, I was responsible for any of the people who burnt it down. So, you know, I can tell you, though, is they go up really fast. Yeah. 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 They do. They do. They do. Um, so, I would thoroughly recommend people getting your book purely for the shelter section. And that's not any denigration of the quality of the rest of the book, Bruce, but I'm just saying the, the quality of, of the detail and everything there is, is such that, you know, I think it's worth reading, worth owning just for the shelter stuff, but there's a ton of other stuff in there. And one of the, I like, as I say, the attention to detail. So, you know, you've even, you've even considered which are the best whistles, good colors for emergency clothing and, and signaling can you talk us through some of those little details because i'm sure that would be you know those are the sorts of things that people maybe don't think about so much they just think oh. again it's like oh i've got a lighter i've got matches i've got a whistle i've got a jacket that's not green but you've gone another level in this book i think and in terms well, yeah, of collating everything that, yeah in terms of like just in, in terms of signaling is you know we have what i consider our basic signaling stuff you know using a signal mirror using a, a plastic peeless whistle which most people have got the concept that a, a metal whistle with a p is going to be really bad <laughs> you know the 40 blow with it stuck to your lips <laughs> and not working even if you could blow on it right so some of that stuff is more basic and we've got that but a lot of the things for example like the fox 40 whistles we buy in canada were invented by a referee Mm -hmm. It was it was sports that got us these really great whistles for the wilderness. Yeah. So it was just more of an accident than anything. I well, guess. And they are really good. Oh, yeah. They're a great whistle. But, you know, so that's the basic stuff. And, you know, being able to light a signal fire, you know, and, and that's a good example of where like in shelters where I might give you eight pictures of one shelter so you can actually build it step by step in signaling, you know, for a signal fire, I give you one design. Because there's only so even with 450 pages, there's things you had to leave out of the book. Sure. But I give you one good design saying, this is the one I like. I like this design because it works well. And this is why. And then this is how you build it. Right? And you're done. When you're getting into modern signaling, it becomes a little more complicated because then we deal with technology. Mm. And although we kind of have this feeling we use technology all the time, often we don't understand it. Like, where does a cell phone work? Where does a cell phone not work? Uh, you know, what kind of satellite signaling devices can you have? Because, you know, that's something that's changed. Yeah. No, or I shouldn't say nobody, almost no one travels into the backcountry who goes into any extended backcountry tripping without some sort of satellite based retrieval device mm -hmm. these days. You know, I use a spot. I've got a SARSAT beacon, so I have two, <laughs> um, you know, in reach or any of these other ones are used all the time and they make a big difference. And the guys I know that work in the wilderness, in the outdoors, in really areas, all of them carry something. Yeah. Any of the outdoor guides that are going into the backcountry these days are carrying some, one of those devices. Yeah. And that's a big change because I'd say 30 years ago, none of that was it either, either wasn't invented or you couldn't get it. No, no, it's true. You know, I mean, when I started doing stuff, you know, I'm, I'm younger than you, Bruce. Um, 
but you know when i started backpacking trips and things you, there was just nothing you, you know i carried some flares and a mirror and you know th there was no communications device that i could take with me and even when i first got a cell phone i mean cell phone coverage is vastly improved now um particularly you know on on this side of the atlantic when we don't you know in particular countries we've got a denser population than a lot of canada for example but i'm not just talking about the uk i'm also talking about scandinavia you know i can go and hot tent quite a long way away from anywhere in northern scandinavia inside the arctic circle and i can get a 4g phone signal that just didn't happen 25 years ago i mean you 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 couldn't afford a phone. It weighed a ton. It, you couldn't get a reception outside of town anyway. Um, so we've it's completely changed, even with basic cell phone coverage now. And then we've got these other devices, which, as you say, Spot and Beacons. And, you know, I, I've got a satellite phone as well, which I'd take on some trips with me. Yeah, you've, your options are, are quite uh, multifold now. Right, and what and it's often people have forgotten or, or don't understand the technology. I, um, you know, like satellite phones is a great example where there's some areas of the world they work really, really well. The one area where they're just abysmally horrible is the one area in Canada we need them because our cell service is really bad in the in the mountains, but yet the satellite phones tend not to work because those satellites tend to be t to our south, and so the mountains are generally blocked. Yeah, so too too low an angle. Yeah, and so yeah. there's just a really bad angle. Mm -hmm. And so you run into lots of problems where the in-reach and the spot tends to actually be a little bit better because the satellites tend to be above us because mm -hmm. they were made for container tracking. Yeah. Yeah, so I've, so I've found spot works pretty well, in you know, just in terms of, you know, I've never had to use it for an emergency, but for just for checking in and tracking and stuff, it seems to work really well in North America. Yeah, I tend to get five out of my six messages go through. Mm-hmm. And if you had any length of time, so in other words, if you're in danger, you just turned it on, you left it on for hours, someone eventually would notice it. Yeah. You know, even in a bad location, because usually I'm just in too big a hurry. I'm at the top of a mountain. I want to send off a quick signal to say I'm there. And then the weather turns and I want to leave, not wait around for my uh, <laughs> spot to maybe work or not. Yeah. Yeah. So what would your, do you have an order of preference or do you think it's good to have multiple devices? What would you, what yeah, do you recommend? I mean, if you look at the four that exist, you have the SARSAT beacons, you have the one-way messaging systems like Spot and the, the two-way messaging systems like InReach and Spot now has a alternative, I can't remember its name of it. And then the fourth one is a satellite phone. And my reference is if you go into areas that are less, uh, like not, in the boonies, basically, not in the real, real places where it's it's dangerous to go. One of those systems will do fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're going into really, really rugged wilderness, you're going into areas where you're up in the Arctic or something, where you just it really is in the boonies, you know. And, and I don't like a lot of people in Canada put the 60th parallels that line, but I know areas south of that that are just as absolutely hard to get into and hard to be rescued then really you should be thinking about two in my books. Mm -hmm. And that's why I actually have my uh, little um, Sarset beacon. I carry that in my life jacket for those times where I find where I can canoe. I can go canoeing for two weeks or whatever, and I can really get a long ways out. I can get into areas that are a long ways away, and I can you know, drive eight or ten hours to get to the spot before I go there. 
And so I can really be in areas where you're thinking, I really need a second thing just in case. And that's before you start talking about being separated from, you know, because I, like I say, I take a the satellite phone but then it goes in a small pelly case and that's in my day bag and you know if i come out and of your my day bag is attached to your canoe exactly yeah right that's actually why i've got that beacon in my life jacket for the oops where did the boat go well it sunk <laughs> it's pinned on that rock and i'm on the bank yeah, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> i know a guy that watched his canoe be ripped in half on a in, in the arctic on a on a rock so yeah. yeah you can see how that would be a bad day for everyone concerned yeah indeed Indeed. Two weeks, though, for a canoe trip is not long for you, Bruce. I've been following your Instagram and, and Facebook, and you've been posting, you mentioned it briefly earlier, that for the 30th anniversary of this explorations journey that you did as part of your college course. Um, quite an incredible canoe trip. Uh, I'd love for you to just describe a little bit about you know the route that you took and some of the learning points, because I know you've written a long blog post about it recently which i've i've read through some of i've not read through the daily entries because i've read through some of those as you've posted them but i i the fact that i mean you've described it as a life-changing experience but also an expedition with no drama and we can kind of come on to the drama aspect of the way these things are perceived maybe in a little bit if we talk about tv and your question that you posed just yesterday on social media but First off, I'm kind of rambling off on a tangent already there. Tell us about this great journey that you did when you were a young, younger man. Right. So this was, again, again literally exactly 30 years ago. And over that, um, this summer, I, I, I posted out of my logbook a picture and a little bit of, uh, of my logbook text from every day over that 90-day period as I sort of re-looked re at it. But it was part of uh, the University of Alberta's Explorations Program. And what the Explorations Program was is basically your senior term at the University of Alberta in outdoor education. And what they would do is they'd get together a year before and you would start planning. And they, add, you, they basically told you to brainstorm. What do you want to do? And you could brainstorm any number of trips. I think we probably settled on five different activities that we did. So we did an advanced first aid course. We did an avalanche course and with a little with a trip. We did a 12-day ski trip, and then we decided we'd dream big than maybe most of the other other groups had ever done. And we decided that we would do a 90-day or what turned out to be 94 days out of the uh, canoe trip. So mm. it would end up being a 90-day canoe trip. And we had done a canoe trip in the fall, which was part of the same river, part of the North Saskatchewan River. So we canoed that from what they call Nordegg Bridge to Rocky Mountain House, a route that you're very familiar with now or part of it. Yeah, I had a very nice relaxed trip on, on that following the uh, the GBS yeah. because we were just looked after totally. Those guys, Healer Adventures, just looked after us and I felt completely uh, out of out of kilter at first because I'm used to being the guy who helps people get the fire going and get camp organized and make sure everyone knows what's going on and I didn't have to do anything. It was wonderful. So, yeah. It's and it's a beautiful section of river. It, is, so it was really fall. enjoyable, really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, it's actually one of the I think one of the most. It's one of the few routes that I think I've done. Oh, maybe eight or nine times now. Right. Beautiful route. I, I love it. It's a great ring. So we did that in the in the um in in September, and then on the at the end of April, uh, this would have been 1989. Uh, we left uh, Rocky Mountain House. So that would have been the original 
a major fur trading post on the North Saskatchewan River. Mm-hmm. And we canoed east and we, we followed the entire North Saskatchewan River. So we, 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 we went through all of Alberta, all of Saskatchewan, and then um, it meets in eastern Saskatchewan. The two, um, the North and the South Saskatchewan rivers join up and it becomes the Saskatchewan. And then from the, we followed the Saskatchewan down to um, Lake Winnipeg. And just before that, there's a big reservoir, um, Besnard Lake. That it was originally a lake, but much smaller than it, or much uh, much smaller than it is today because it's been flooded over, mm. and it made it a nasty, nasty little lake. And we got winded in, and we lost some days of our journey. And of course, along the way, with a 90 day canoe trip, as one knows, you can't put 90 days of food in. No. So you're left. You know, you can stick about three weeks food in a canoe. Not bad. Yeah. Two weeks is easy, three weeks becomes a little stuffed. So we had food drops basically every two or three weeks. We'd roll into a town and these food boxes would have been mailed ahead and we'd pack them up into our canoes and buy a little fresh food and keep going. Mm-hmm. So at Lake Winnipeg, we ran into a big problem. We'd lost three or four days by being winded in and we made it to Lake Winnipeg and effectively in Lake Winnipeg, which is a nasty lake, the, <laughs> one of the biggest lakes in Canada, or maybe in the world, but the north end of the lake is only 32 feet deep. Yeah. So, so it wh- makes where does where does the river? So I'm just trying to. I actually don't know the answer to this question. Where does the river that you were on come into Winnipeg? Okay, it dumps into the Winnipeg River in a place called Grand Rapids. Right. It's in the northeastern corner of the uh, of Lake Winnipeg. Okay, I've pulled up and, a I pulled up a Google map now. I know. I know yeah, where you, you are. can see yeah. there's that big peninsula sort of on yeah. the side of that. Yeah. And basically, we got there and we waited for two days for the weather to change, and all we got was like two meter waves. Mm. And you know, an open canoe and two meter waves, it was just no. <laughs> and then we asked, of course, while we were there, all the locals, and they said, oh. You can't really canoe very well in that area. And there was no roads because it's so remote to get around it. And basically the closest we could get dumped off at the time, I'm not sure if the roads have changed much up there, was a place called Hecla. And that, so what we did is we got a, a vehicle to drive us around, which is the only piece of the journey we missed, unfortunately. That peninsula, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then got dumped off on the shore of, of Lake Winnipeg, crossed the lake, and went so, down the eastern shore. So you did cross the lake, because that was sort of renowned in the fur trade days as something that was sketchy, crossing yeah. Winnipeg. Yeah. Which is very st- strange, because it was the nicest day on Lake Winnipeg we had. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> we just roared across as fast as we could go, because it was beautiful and calm. And where, where, just, did you, where did you cross? Hecla, which is sort of where it's where it's narrow in the middle. Right. So there's a narrow spot there with an island in the stuffed in the middle of it. And so what it basically does is turn into two channels. If you um, look there, you see Fisher Lake Park Reserve. Yes. Or, right. And then as you go down there, you you'll see something oh, okay. called yeah, Hecla Grindstone Central yeah. Park and yeah. a big island. Yeah. And that's where we crossed. We crossed from what they say called Gull Harbor. Yep. We went then down the south side of that island and then went straight across, basically into that bay or there's a little spit. And then after that, we, we basically went down the east side of the, um, of the lake. Right. And no time did we ever after that get a full day's paddling. Hmm. It would 
it was so it was all we'd get winded in we did things like get up at four in the morning and paddle and then paddle for three or four hours then we had to stop and then we'd sit around and we get back in the canoes at eight o'clock at night and paddle for hours yeah i mean that's something that always i think surprises people how that wind comes up i mean i had it it wasn't too critical for me. I just did a two-week trip on the Barrens, which is just east of Lake Winnipeg. And yeah, you could you know get up for a pee at four in the morning and it's dead calm. And by nine, the wind is moving the water quite significantly, nine or 10 in the morning, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. That whole expedition was really, really good at teaching me not to fight nature. Yeah. That you, put the, you throw this schedule that you have in civilization right out the door and do whatever nature gives you. And if it means getting up at four in the morning and paddling for four hours and then having breakfast, mm-hmm. then that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, that's what we do. Yeah. Carry on, because if not, you're just gonna be wasting your whole day. Yeah, or wasting a lot of energy, not getting very far. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. And so then after that point, we uh, paddled up the Winnipeg River, which is very easy to say, because it's only five words, but a lot harder to do. <laughs> Fortunately, there's a few um, dams along the way, so there's a couple of breaks. So you're not, you know, you're not suffer. You don't suffer nearly as much as the voyageurs would have. Right. We do it now. We cross Lake um, Lake of the Woods, and then after you get to Lake of the Woods, you paddle up the Rainy River, and the Rainy River is basically the U.S. Canada border. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you're following the border. And you get to a place called Fort Francis. And then after that, you're working your way through what the Americans call the border waterways. Mm-hmm. And that is beautiful shield country and lots of portaging and um, almost all upstream, although not nearly as bad as the Winnipeg River was, so that the upstream's not quite as bad. And by then, we got pretty good at doing things like avoiding portages. So we pushed our canoes up. We'd look at a portage and say, what are they portaging around? Is it a waterfall? If it wasn't a waterfall, in most cases, and or blocked by something, we'd push our canoes through. Mm -hmm. Up to including even a couple of times sawing some logs to remove them from the river so we could push our canoes through. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. You know, even even on downstream journeys, you know, if we can line or just drag the boats through, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, and, and lining, pulling, avoiding portaging, anything we could do along the way we did, and then eventually made it near the very, very end of July, we made it to Grand Portage, mm-hmm. which is the toughest portage of the bunch because it's 14 kilometers of portaging. But as all portages there, we had to do three trips, one trip with the boats and one set of some of the gear back, pick up the second set of gear and bring it back. Mm-hmm. And so we made it just at the end of July. We got to uh, Lake Superior. And by that time, we had kind of numbed to, from Lake Winnipeg. So we looked at the lake and it was choppy and we said, that's nice. And all put our hands in and said, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. So we had a couple of days allotted to go up the coast of uh, Superior to get to um, Fort William, where we had our, where we canoed in up the, uh, up the river there and, um, and had a little bit of a a shring ding at the fort, you know, at the end. So yeah, it was it was definitely life changing. It changed a lot of this. First of all, like you know, before a month long trip was long. Yeah. Now 
you know, when I do 10 or 12 days of canoeing, I find that it takes me, you know, by six or eight days in, you're finally, I'm finally starting to get the real, like, just skill back and all of those things you have to think about in just in terms of how you do things and how you save energy. You know, we worked as, as a group. You had to work really together. If you want 90 days of successful wilderness expeditions, whether canoeing or doing anything else, the group really has to work. And you can't have a system where someone doesn't do things. No. Like on a weekend or a week, you might be able to get away with that or just not do it and whatever. But that's not the way it works, right? You just, everyone had to do. And we eventually just built a rotation of who, who sets up one tent, who sets up the other tent, who cooks, who assists with the cooking, who does dishes. And we just had that constantly rotated because along the way, as we were back, you know, two or three weeks, you know, you would have to do things like bake bread. So we were baking all the time with this horrible Coleman oven over coals, <laughs> right? So this is where technology has long since bypassed that. There's all these nice things. It's like, wow, you know, that would be really nice if we yeah. had that. And gear's light. I mean, where you need it to be, gear's lighter now as well. Oh, yeah. Just thinking about that, those, you know, triple portages with some of the gear 30 years ago. I mean, that must have been brutal, some of that. Yeah, the only advantage is it was way less brutal than it would have been 100 years ago. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Even my dad talking about portaging in Northern uh, Ontario with all their canvas gear and everything else. Mm. Right? It's like, yeah, okay, well, we were one up from that. My tent didn't weigh what his tent weighed. My sleeping bag didn't weigh what his sleeping bag weighed. Right. Yeah. So there was some advantages, but yeah, some of that gear now, you, I just look at it and laugh. Right? <laughs> or the number of times I can see pictures of me without my, my, my life jacket, which you wouldn't see me doing today. No. You know, no. it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> you still see it now there's a lot of um photos um used in marketing still particularly on fronts of maps and you know in brochures and on some of the park websites and things i was looking at recently and there's people there clearly they're paddling in the 80s or early 90s because of the the buoyancy age and the pfds that they're wearing you know you know they look like boiler lagging more than a, a modern buoyancy aid but you know nobody's wearing helmets you know on quite severe rapids and things and you just don't see that now everyone's you know well, in terms of the safety gear they seem to use yeah. it and wear it a lot better now mostly yeah but even then like i mean we did we we would never go without a life jacket in any white water mm -hmm. never did you know, and, and in any time it was cold. Like, so I never took my life jacket off on the, on, on the, um, on the river until the end of May. Mm -hmm. And then when we started to roast into the, that, and we go, we were on class one rivers and lakes and things like that. Then we tended to wear our life jackets for warmth. Yes. So it was a cold or lively day or conditions got bad. We'd immediately have our life jackets on. Yeah. But no one wore helmets in when I did my university training until the very, very end on whitewater. Mm-hmm. So helmets were not things that were the norm in white water in Canada until the 90s. No, I don't think they were here. I think it kind of came over from the kayaking world, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then that was that's where it was. Where, But no one would be seen without a life jacket. Just like we would have all worn in almost all the conditions on white water, we'd have been wearing wetsuits, like a shorty wetsuit or mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. That would be the norm, wetsuits and a life jacket. and Because I've come off the North Saskatchewan River and not passed the hypothermia test. Yeah. After dumping the boat. Yeah, like, I can imagine that river's really after. cold in the spring. Oh, yeah. Right. And that was the interesting thing. I mean, we started that expedition in the end of April. There was ice on the shores. Mm. You know, there was mud on the thing. There was no leaves. And we watched spring come and then summer come. 
Mm. And that was sort of an amazing part of that journey of just watching everything change. And it was a continual change as we went across the prairies until we were in summer. Mm. And then the shield. Must have been quite an incredible experience. Yeah, I can see why it's uh, so seminal in in many ways for you, and and such a a big step in your in your development. I mean, I've never done a trip anywhere near as long as that. I can only imagine what that's like in terms of you know getting into the groove of a journey like that. It must be quite quite something. Well, yeah, and part of that is you know like the. You know, one of the things that the University of Alberta did really well is they trained us in counseling and leadership and working together, consensus, team building, all of those skills. They said those are the important skills, communication skills, building these things up. Mm -hmm. And then we they said, now go out and practice it. And we decided, yeah, we wanted to dream big and go out even longer than most people had done and go well beyond our term of school. And instead, we went out and we did a long trip. And we learned a lot, but that's where it was. We learned you had to work together. You know, you have to do that. Once you do that, you know, you can, you know, the, 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 the reason we did so well is we were willing to say today's a really crappy day. Let's not go out there and get killed. Mm-hmm. Let's not lose our boats because we lose our boats. Then we're done. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like you know, on a 90 day trip. One of the things you learned is you want to go swimming. And it's like, well, if I go swimming, I'm gonna. There, I'm not gonna be swimming with my clothes because if they get wet, then I'm done. Yeah. If it turns, like you know, that was the kind of things you think about. You wouldn't normally think about that in terms of a, a two-day canoe trip or a three-day canoe trip because if your gear got wet, whatever, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Ninety days, we couldn't afford that. Yeah. Yeah. So your 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 kind of time horizon on getting things sorted out is that much greater, and therefore you can't allow things to slip. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you'd also yeah. see things like wear out, like mm-hmm. T-shirts that were, you know, done by the end. All my um, uh, uh, polypropylene socks rotted on the trip. <laughs> and over time, you just would leave them outside the tent because you couldn't bring them in the tent because your tent just wouldn't accept them. <laughs> they stuck too much, right? And so you didn't do it. And then eventually, my even one of my my set of runners. So the, I we had used once. I had one set of runners that I wore on the river with uh, like a neoprene sock mm-hmm. eventually, eventually got rid of the sock because it was just too hot as the summer wore on and then another pair you'd wear walking around camp well by the time i got to grand portage i i dumped the one set into the garbage because they were done like right. i found a garbage at the end of the grand portage in the park there and i dropped the boots right off because mm-hmm. they were gone after three months they were new when they started both pairs but the other pair, but and but even the the pair I wore on camp was starting to wear out. Right, and again, that's that's something that a lot of people don't think about. You know, you you see it in the gear that you buy, not so much footwear, but ge- more generally the gear that you buy in outdoor stores. A lot of it maybe isn't made to last particularly long, you know, because it, most people are not using it for an extended period of time where it can't be replaced. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have that with boots where a lot of my hiking boots now will wear out after three or four seasons. Mm. But I have ones that say, well, those lasted 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> or those lasted through explorations and I still have them, you know, for years after. Mm-hmm. You subtitled your blog post on that journey as an expedition with no drama. 
do you want to expand on that a little bit? I mean, clearly it, it's kind of in some ways it's 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 kind of obvious what it means, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess the fact is because we did it right and we didn't have any great dramas to talk about, and we didn't set ourselves up to have these dramas the way television does. Mm. We got much the opposite. It was an interesting thing. Of course, we did 90 days. And at the end of it, many people said, well, because you had no drama, it must have been easy. <laughs> and it was like, oh, I don't think you get it. You know, and that's what I thought about then. And, you know, now when I'm in retrospect and after talking to all the other five of individuals on the expedition, you know, we had, I had a great talk in terms of that because they were all at one point or another in their careers, outdoor education professionals after we got out. And, you know, it was that really thing of because we did a really good job and because we avoided drama and we avoided giant arguments and we avoided breaking the group up and having, you know, because when two people quit from your group, that's a failure. Mm. You know, and we have this all the time in expeditions. You hear about these guys. Oh, this guy couldn't do it. So he left. Well, well, okay. But was that, you know, I think most of that when, you know, being in the really intense stuff is everyone's under intense physical pressure. In, in, in terms of, you know, you're not getting enough food at the end. Uh, some of the stuff we talk about there is from an article I actually wrote for Dave Holder for his new book on survival physiology mm -hmm. coming up. But that was the fact that all of us were having trouble sitting by the end of the expedition because all the fat in our uh, arses had been disappeared. <laughs> so as we sit here right now, you know, in London and Edmonton, we're not having that problem. No. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> but I had that problem then. And what it ended up was it ended up shortening the distance, wanting to have more breaks, wanting to go on shore more and everything else. And it was very interesting, like not, you know, physiology in terms of what happens on a long expedition. You can see where people would just say, I had enough of it. Yeah. I had it just before long portage where I was getting really sick. And, you know, it was a real push. Fortunately, everyone on that expedition had had some good and bad days. And by the time I hit a bad day, everyone was more than willing to make up for that by working a little harder to make up for the fact that suddenly, instead of me running the portages, I wasn't doing that anymore. Mm. You know, because by then, for most of the portages, me and Jacqueline would actually run back on the portage. Right. Because we we're thinking that, you know, we're, we got all this upper body and we're getting no lower body. Yeah. And that is a thing, isn't it? Absolutely. With canoe trips. I mean, it's, yeah, the, you know, you get a certain leg strength from carrying things, but yeah, it's mainly, you know, most of the day is, is upper body, torso, arms, shoulders, <coughs> yeah. core strength. Yeah, I know that when I got to Dunder in Saskatchewan for August to work for the army, um, I, the number of chin-ups I could do had doubled. <laughs> I was quite proud of that. Yeah. You know, there's nothing else that helped out. But, you know, <laughs> for a few months, I could do more chin-ups. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all that upper back strength. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, we we touched on the drama and the TV, and and it's kind of quite timely because of something that you asked yesterday in a post, and maybe this is why you asked yesterday because you've been uh, looking through this thirty-year-old log of your trip and looking through the photographs and curating those somewhat and thinking about that trip with no drama. But you asked a question about the role of wilderness survival training in modern outdoor education and what is that role and particularly in the context of how people perceive survival now with reality a so-called reality survival tv um what what are your takes on that bruce well you know i look back at it and when i was taking my training 
in the University of Alberta and other institutions, one of the things I really noticed was no one had a big hype about survival. They were teaching you survival, whether that was at Augustana or the University of Alberta, you know, any of these things, scouting, all of that was taught because they knew you were going to get stranded eventually. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you just needed to learn it. Yep. And if you're going to be an outdoor leader, you needed to be able to be that much better at those basic skills so you could take care of your students, your mm-hmm. clients, however you want to think of it, even guiding or whatever. That was part of what you had to do. You had to be able to do that extra stuff. And so therefore, you had to be good at it. You know, so fire lighting, shelter building, and, and you know, group management, all of those skills were things you had to understand and do. And what I see now is a lot of this is being hyped up so that survival has to be miserable instead of understanding that you're miserable when you make mistakes. Hmm. You're, you know, if you're, if you, if you do it right, you're not miserable at all. I mean, you know, it, it becomes a camping trip with limited gear, hmm. which is annoying in some cases, right? You know, like, you know, if you wanted a tent and don't have a tent, you're, you're going to be a little miserable in the, in mosquito country, right? That's life. But what we have is this hype about how it has to be miserable and horrible and also a bigger preponderance or preponderance of people teaching skills that were thought of as very unimportant. Like, in other words, this is cool. You should know it. If you want to be a survival instructor, you should know this stuff. Right. And teach a lot of those skills now as in, if you don't do that, you're not really a survival instructor. Mm. You know, and these weren't the same skills that, you know, if Morris taught a week-long course, he would have spent, like for the University of Alberta, which I taught on a number of them, He'd spend 95% of his time walking around the woods, showing people the real plants, more importantly, the, the trees, understanding them. How do you firelight? How do you big twil- twig bundles? Let's do another one. Let's do another one. Let's do some basic tool use. Let's understand the baton and the saw and the knife before we even worry about the axe. Yeah. And then some of these other things have now been hyped as in they're more important. Right. Or and, and I think a lot of it's because they look really cool on TV. Mm. Do you have and, particular things in mind there without pointing, if you don't want to point well, fingers, I understand. Well, I would but. say two of them. One would be bow drilling, mm-hmm. however cool and fun bow drilling is. We always taught bow drilling like in a long course like that. But it was emphasized as something that's really neat, but you're never going to use in a survival situation. Mm-hmm. Because the chance of you being able to light a fire with a bow drill, when you're unprepared to light a fire with a bow drill, is pretty close to zero. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, Morris would just turn around and think you're an idiot if you went to the woods without matches and a lighter and a striker, right? Yeah. And, like that's what he'd say. And he was very blunt about it back then. I think he got a little nicer in his old age. Right? <laughs> back then, you know, when he was my age, he was just, oh, no, you're an idiot. You know, mm-hmm. don't do stupid things like that, mm-hmm. right? And so this is where you'd learn that and then we'd move on to it. And then he'd point out realistically that if you just did this without you know, without cord, because you just happen to have bootlaces. How come we all wandered in the woods when we walk out in the boreal forest in Alberta? Almost all of us are wearing rubber boots, so we have no cord. Mm-hmm. So now suddenly, take all that stuff away and tell me if you can light a fire in four hours by making the cordage first. Yeah, particularly in the boreal, that's going to be pretty tricky. So. Yeah, you know, you just, you know, your chance has suddenly gone downhill. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, all these people set themselves up. Like, I mean, you know, talk about, you know, people on alone that are, you know, making sure they have cotton underwear so they can take chunks of it, up, chop pieces of their side of their underwear out and use it to make um, cloth, um, mm. charred cloth. Mm. 
well, that's all cool, but you know, I don't wear any cotton in the wilderness anymore if I can avoid it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so then you have to have that stuff, but then my, my clothing's way better and dries way faster and is way easier. Right. But there's a lot that that's the one skill I really focus on the fact that it's cool and neat. And there's magic to it. But if I get stuck in the wilderness overnight, I'm almost absolutely unlikely to be able to light a fire with a bow drum mm-hmm. because just the time to actually collect the real components. And if you said you're going to carry your bowdrill with you, then you're silly. Yeah, that 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 to me is one of the biggest things. I've I've had people ask me about carrying bowdrills and things. It's like it, it's like making tent pegs out of wood and carrying them with you. It's like the whole point of being able to make these things is that you can make them in the forest. Oh yeah, if it's you like, need to. Like, but yeah, but then it also teaches you what's important to carry with you, and it's not those things. It's not the pieces of wood that you can make and find when you're there. Potentially, it's the lighter and the the ferro rod and the and the matches and the knife and the compass and the mirror and the bits of plastic and those things that are going to make your shelter. So. Well, I saw that with someone carrying a baton, and I asked, "Well, why are you carrying your baton?" Well, it's a nice baton. It's like, well, who cares? Get another one. Mm. You know, like that's the idea. I'd have burnt my baton. You know, like that's <laughs> firewood. It's one less thing to collect. Yeah. Yeah, people often, nope. you know, people often raise an eyebrow to me, and I say, if you want to practice bow drill, go to the woods. For, you know, the skill is to be able to go to the woods and make it. If you want to develop that skill, go to the woods, find the materials, make the set, and often the the real, as you say, the cordage is a real limiting factor, and also finding decent um, material that you can take an ember to flame with is often difficult, particularly when it's damp. You know, you often need to take some time to get that dry, and so the time, as you say, the time scale is going to be extended rather than it being you know something straightforward but regardless the skill is to go to get to get the materials and make it it isn't being able to do it with a piece of bought timber in your backyard you know that you've had in the garage for that's not the skill the skill is to go and find the materials and make the set and make make an ember but even so you've still got to take a lot of time to do that and you need to be well practiced and that when you're stranded as you say and this is the same thing with shelters people say oh well you know i just build a natural shelter it's like okay go and build a natural shelter and tell me how long it takes you yeah to to make a decent one that's going to keep you warm out of entirely natural materials and then tell me are you going to be able to do that an hour before it gets dark when you realize you're not getting back to your vehicle or you realize you're not getting home that night and if it's cold in our environment yeah when you need a fire all night that's going to be the biggest thing. So yeah. when you look at skills to teach, that's one of the problems. We will spend the time doing bow drilling instead of spending the time actually walking around the woods and pointing out what a real tree is that's dead, that's safe enough to saw down mm-hmm. or where the firewood is and where the resources are. Mm-hmm. Because that's a skill. Yep. And it's a real skill. And it's one of those ones that is sadly often done. Like people understand, I'll do a one-day course and we may spend out of that eight hours course we spend maybe two and a half to three hours of that in the forest walking around pointing this out hauling stuff back going here we could have this we could have this let's take that back now we'll use that for a fire let's go out and collect saplings and show you a half a dozen saplings these are good this is what you want mm-hmm. now let's collect enough saplings for one shelter just so you see how it works not enough in a one-day course for everyone to build it but we'll at least do it yeah because if you don't feel that touch it look at the tree I find a lot of people don't even know what a real dead tree is or what a really a tree that is actually 
um, season. So they forget that if you get firewood, you can stack it in your woodshed for a year and it's good in a year. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. So that that sort of dead standing and dry thing is lost on a lot of people. Like people bring in damp stuff that's rotten, it's damp. Just getting people to identify that stuff is, even if it's dead and standing, it needs to be in the right condition and then bringing it in, where to find decent twigs for kindling, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it is It is a skill and it isn't taken for granted. Yeah, no, no, and, and that's one of the things that part of what, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm hoping to get that conversation going is where what are the essential skills we, we need to do and what are the neat ones that we go on to? Mm. Because I have seen a lot of these people that can they have incredible crafting skills, and some of that crafting skills can be really, really handy as a catalyst. But you know, it's an example of cocktails where Morse would always teach you how to make a cocktail doll, mm-hmm. and the idea was that you'd learn, and it was just a basic catalyst skill to go on to the next day and then make maybe a cocktail mat or a cocktail basket. Yep. Right. So it's a catalyst skill that he could teach to young kids and do all that. Well, that's really, really cool. But if you only have 24 hours to teach someone, you don't have time to do that. What's the what's the fundamental skill you need to learn? Mm. Okay, we can actually use cattails. Let's look at the component parts. Let's go to a swamp and rip a couple out. Okay, now you know how to do it. Because if not, when you get to the real survival situation, you'll have no clue. You'll remember how to make a cattail doll. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there have been situations where people have pulled the wrong you know they, they've recognized the cattail but they've pulled out the wrong underground storage organ and uh, poisoned themselves so because they've no idea what a cattail rhizome looks like so, right yeah. and if you haven't collected this stuff and done it or as i always say if there's a plant that looks really close to this plant that's poisonous take both off your list yeah you know because it's not worth it no you know, because we're not going to starve to death in a survival situation. No. You know, that's a fundamental of philosophy. However annoyed we'll be because we're not eating, we're not going to starve to death. And therefore, what's important? Well, if I don't light a fire, I'm done. <laughs> if I don't build a good shelter, I'm done. If I don't collect water safely and actually uh, purify it, I'm done. Mm-hmm. If I can do that, then I'm, I'm going to survive. And there's a good story at the back in one of the, the chapter on that on um, – these three kids from uh, who were stranded in Frog Lake in a, on an island for 24 days. Mm-hmm. They had a lighter. The pocket lighter saved their life. They scavenged. They built a shelter. They built a fire. They scavenged the island, and they found an old rusty pot and a couple of mugs. And therefore, they could stay hydrated for 24 days. So they lived. Mm-hmm. And that was in fall. That was the, well, later than this time of year. They were in, um, they were in October into early November. Yeah. But without those skills i.e. knowing I need a shelter, I need a fire, and I need water, they would have died. Mm -hmm. Because 24 days is too long to have survived without that knowledge of survival. What they didn't do was very interesting. They didn't eat anything. They scavenged the island for the first day, and they got got a bunch of plants and and stuff. And then after that, the oldest member, one of the – there was two girls and a boy. The the middle girl was sort of the leader of the group. But the Danny, the boy, was smart enough to say there's nothing left on the island to eat. Mm. so they fasted for 23 days effectively hmm. that's uh, a good example a good example of that prioritization yeah absolutely yeah and with with modern signaling devices and letting somebody know where you are then most people are not going to be out that long if they're stranded these days are they well no i mean i basically 
work on a premise that, you know, 99% of our survival situations are short term, like one to four days. Mm -hmm. But if you're out by yourself, you're, you know, canoeing or hiking or hunting or fishing or whatever, you should expect to have to spend two nights out. Mm -hmm. If you're a field worker, so you're working in a business, you should expect one night. Because retrieval doesn't always happen when you want it. Like on TV, it's always done by the end of the episode, right? <laughs> but in the real world, it takes a while to get search and rescue to work, especially in a big country, mm-hmm. right? It just takes time. And then some days, helicopters can't fly. Yep. Right? And that's just going to be the way it's going to work. Like those helicopters can't get up in the air or it's too dangerous to send them up or the, the weather grounds them or whatever that is. So they're not there. And the ground search may take time because they might have to clear the road to make it to where you are mm-hmm. before they can even go in to look for you yeah there's those practicalities you know and, and it's like it's all well and good if you've if you've signaled somehow to say that you need some rescue if you've activated a, a beacon or press the i need help button on your spot or called for help with the sat phone or what have you but even then if it's down to somebody just missing you checking in it's going to take a bit longer you know it's all well and good saying yep i need help but if you've got a system where it's like if you don't hear from me every day then you know maybe i'm not okay that that's going to extend your time out anyway isn't it so you're going to have multiple nights out because of that well yeah if you say hey it's going to be three days you know i always have that as i always give myself a day and a half extra when i'm canoeing Mm -hmm. for these longer trips well that's all really cool but what happens when you lose your canoe on day two yeah (laughs) <laughs> you know you're like, oh okay so today i'm not done so now i'm hoping they haven't noticed that i haven't sent a spot an okay message out in 12 days so now hopefully they'll come search for me yeah yeah so it's you, funny so i i think that piece that's one of the pieces of advice that i think is a little bit misplaced that where people say oh let somebody know when you're due back so that if you're not back on time they can alert their police or the rescue services or what have you that's fine if you're out for a day hike it's not fine if you're out for a couple of weeks you need a a, a slightly more robust plan than that right and you need that time frame you know and i I mean i know in explorations it was we check in about six or eight times along the way you Mm -hmm. know we might have checked in a few more but we got we canoe back into civilization and we'd find a payphone (laughs) that was the check-in process yep we'd phone our professor yeah we're still alive harv Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> How's it going? Oh, really good. No problem. Where are you? You know, oh, yeah, I'm in. I, I'm in the Paw, Manitoba now. Oh, okay, great. You know, you're gonna be there for a day, and then we're heading out back onto the river. Thanks. Okay, see ya. <laughs> yeah. So you have to. You have to have that. But you're right. I mean, you, what back in the day, it was a payphone at best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, that was the system, and it was. Uh, it was. You know, it was. It was at best poor. Right. And, you know, we have these modern systems, assuming you're smart enough to use them and invest in them and say, hey, I better have one of these things and I better figure out how it works. Yeah. And I better use it so I know that in a problem, I can get it to go. In other words, this is what I can do. I can actually get it to go. Yeah. Yeah. So be familiar with it before you need it. It's like any it's like any technique really that we're talking about, isn't it? Just have that familiarity before you need to rely on it. Well, yeah, because if not, you may run into this interesting. I, I, I teach a lot of telecommunications workers, people that work out, you know, maintaining cell towers and all this stuff, the infrastructure across Canada. Mm-hmm. And I always said in one of my in my courses that, you know, if you get stuck, stay in your vehicle 
And, you know, if it's in the middle of a big storm, the greater operator will um, eventually come and clear the road and he'll find you and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And I'm teaching this in southeastern Alberta. And we're very, very, we get into Suffield where the British Army works and it's flat and horrible and some of the most um, toughest terrain for having no resources. It just doesn't have anything. Mm -hmm. Windblown snow, maybe. And then nothing else. But I'm teaching this group of students, and at the end, one of the guys, I, mean, I said the story, he said, you know, I, I've got a I'll tale for you, Bruce, that this is why I, why I want to take this course so much and why I'm you know, really happy to be able to figure out how to rebuild my survival kit and what I should have. Because the winter before, so this is going to be last fall, so the winter before that, he had been driving out to one of these remote cell towers. And when he, and he got about halfway out down this road, that almost, this ranch road that no one took kind of thing. And he found the grader off the road. And the grader operator had been there for two and a half days. <laughs> so he rescued the grader operator. <laughs> so the type- shivering in his in the cab of his grader for like two and a half days. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, you know. <laughs> so the tables were turned there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Of course, he had no problem wanting to learn better about what he should be packing. Because no. he figured it could have been the other way around. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's nothing like a real world experience to, to bring those things into focus. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Well, Bruce, just want to respect your time a little bit and bring this maybe right round to a kind of conclusion. That we've talked about lots there. One thing we haven't talked about is your is your podcast, which I think is worth people investigating. Where can people find that, Bruce? Okay, so it's called the Canadian Outdoor Survival Podcast, and you can get that canadiansurvival.info slash podcast. That's where I host it, but it's it's on iTunes or any of the other podcasting services. You can subscribe to it. The only thing I'll say about it is I'm sporadic sometimes with doing it. If I get really busy um, being a nearly normally a one-person operation, um, sometimes I, I'll drop a podcast here or there as I go. Uh, for example, the... Um, the Global Bushcraft Symposium and doing all that organization skills and uh, and a very busy summer got me um, stopped podcasting for a little while. But I generally do 15 to 20 minute podcasts. So they're shorter than yours are, Paul, but mm-hmm. they're, um, they'll be on one little subject. So I have one coming up on the um, on survival in the mountains, mm-hmm. which is, you know, for the Canadian mountains, it's a pretty rugged area. And I've been trying to um, specialize in some of the different regions and see what's the changes that you have. And that should be out sometime this fall. Cool. Cool. So people can get, get signed up with that to get notifications when they come through. And no, and I to- totally get it what it's like trying to produce something on a consistent basis when you're, when you've got a ton of other plates in the air as well. And you, you mentioned to me that you've got some other interesting projects that you're working on as well, which um, I'm sure people will be able to find out more about. I don't know if you want to mention that oh, now, but the, yeah, I the, would mention two of them. Yeah. One is, of course, is a, a lot of my time is going into, I'm about, oh, maybe a third of, uh, finish writing my second book mm-hmm. on wilderness navigation mm-hmm. as well as the fact that i am converting my survival course seminar to video so it'll be an online course Brilliant. and you'll basically go through basically it'll follow the book and you'll go through the same chapters of the book i'll talk about that stuff um there'll be um a, a powerpoint in with the video along with some extra pictures and extra resources at the end of every chapter then you'll do a quiz and move on to the next uh, chapter Sounds great. Sounds really good. Sounds really good. I'm hoping to have that out for 2020. Right. As in 
the survival course seminar course and then i the book well probably the year after that yeah these things take a while don't they oh yes longer than you can ever believe no i'm i'm coming towards the end of doing my first book and i can well believe it (laughs) (laughs) but i didn't before even though people had told me but now i understand (laughs) yeah it does eat a lot of time up and it's you know and you, you look at that and say oh gee you know uh is that consistent you know even there, it's funny because I just found another error of consistency when I went to do this survival course seminar where I have a main teaching point with two different names. Right. It's like, oops, oh, well, you know, it's 450 pages. If, you know, I can only find like five or six major errors now, I'm kind of happy. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. That's not bad. And people can find you at boreal.net as well for the... Yes, boreal.net is the website, and that's for all the courses. And there's like 30 or 40 articles up there and um, links to resources like basically all over the survival world. Yeah, there's some good links there. And survival.info is where my podcast is. And I also curate a list of basically all of the survival companies in Canada that teach survival training that I know about. Okay. Cool. That's interesting. Fantastic. Fantastic. And your book, I mean, I got one from you directly, which I'm very grateful for. Thank you. Um, If people want to get hold of your book, what's the best way for people to do that? Uh, There, if you go to uh, like Mm boreal.net, then just click on the link for books and there'll be a list of, oh, about a dozen or so bookstores that have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got to actually update that list because Ben's Backwoods out of um, out of the U.S. is now selling the book as well, and I hadn't actually added that on yet. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, as long along with that, if you want me to send you a copy of the book, I can signed and everything else from there. The only thing I'd mention from since a lot of your viewers are in the U.K., um, it may be a really slow because it goes surface. Yeah. That means bobbing across the Atlantic. But you will ship international there. Yeah. So there are some of them. uh, The other vendors might be able to do a little bit better job, actually, of shipping it if you're going across the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, I do have quite a lot of listeners in the UK, but I've got listeners in Canada and the US and Australia and around the world in a lot of Western Europe as well. So it's good. It's good. Yeah. If the non-Canadians know they can get it from you or from one of the sellers yeah yeah and the other one the mcnally robinson is a very large bookstore out of winnipeg manitoba mm-hmm. they have a really good shipping system if you um if you that that and um and that and if not again i can send you one no problem at all brilliant that's wonderful so um, i'd encourage people to get hold of that and and, and you know canada is a pretty big place and of course you know it's a very very relevant book for that environment but you know northern united states and also i would say much of what's in this book and uh, that's right in front of me now carries over directly to the northern forests of eurasia as well and a lot of it carries over to just general northern temperate wherever you are in the world so i would i'd recommend it highly so yeah if- when you look at the areas of norway sweden and into russia and finland and russia you know because i don't cover a lot of very specific plants that may have changed or difference between the two continents the niche plants are still there yeah. In, you know, in, in that end and the you know there might be a different subspecies of it there may be some differences in its medicinal or edible quality 
qualities where there's some things that taste better in Europe and are easier to use or you like better and stuff like that we don't have here. That's not really relevant in terms of shelter building. No. Or firelight. No. No. And and one of the things that to me is most consistent about particularly the, the, the boreal forest is that even though they are different species on your side to, to our side of the Atlantic, they all sit in very similar ecological niches. So, you know, you've got various species of spruce in Canada, black spruce in particular, we've got Norway spruce, you've got jack pine, we've got uh, Scots pine, you've got poplars, we've got poplars, different species, you've got birches, we've got birches, different species, but very similar uses. And, you know, you talking about saplings of willow and alder and, and birch, uh, etc it doesn't matter which species you're going to find those analogs on our side of the pond as well so oh, yeah. absolutely yeah and that's really the, the the sense is if you and you're talking about it not from an edible standpoint or mm -hmm. a medicinal standpoint when you come to a survival standpoint that doesn't matter no okay, that's a pine that's what we want this is what we want that's you know i i need beautiful twig bundles then you look for a spruce and yep. go from there absolutely absolutely so uh, lots of wide applicability so yeah another another good one for your library if you're listening to this and you you like to uh, as, as a lot of listeners do like to have a good uh, library of uh, survival and bushcraft uh, books so thank you for taking us through some of that bruce and talking about some of the aspects and also your background and um, i think that was really useful um for people that don't know you and uh, lots of interesting points and i'm sure we could have gone down many different avenues from that and uh, hopefully we will have a round two at some point as well in the future certainly when your navigation book comes out and um, we can we can come around because we haven't really talked about navigation and the importance of navigation we took we touched upon it but i think we'll we'll keep that for another another time There's lots more we could talk about but thank you for your time bruce it's really appreciated well, Paul, thank you very much. I really appreciate the chance to come on to your podcast and talk to your listeners and communicate to a different group of people than I might be um, regularly talking to. Oh, my pleasure, Bruce. My pleasure. Always nice to talk to you. And hopefully um, I'll be back over in Edmonton in the winter. So uh, I hope to maybe catch up with you for a beer or something or a coffee when I'm over next time. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Good, good. Well, thanks again to Bruce for his time and thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please can I ask you to do one of two things. If you're listening on a podcast app, then please leave a rating or even a short review if it allows on the podcast platform you're using. It really helps elevate the visibility of this podcast and put it in front of other people that may find it interesting. And if you're listening to this directly via my blog, so you're not listening via a podcast app like iTunes or Stitcher or Player FM or what have you, if you're just listening directly via the player on my blog, then please share a link to the page with at least one other person you think will enjoy or benefit from the content of the foregoing conversation. That way we can spread the word and help get this conversation and Bruce's work as well as my work in front of a wider audience. And that's always a appreciated. The easiest way to share is of course via Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or other social network but as I say if you've got a friend who likes survival, bushcraft, outdoor life then even just email the link to them if they're not already a listener that would be most appreciated. 
In terms of other resources for you, all relevant links we mentioned in the podcast can be found on the page on my site that accompanies this podcast. And you can get directly there via paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 48. That's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 48. And there you'll find all the links to Bruce's websites. And there you've got all the resources that Bruce mentioned as well. So thanks again for listening. And I look forward to bringing you another podcast before too long. In the meantime, enjoy the outdoors, stay safe. Don't forget your survival kit. Don't forget your communications device and have fun. Take care. Bye-bye.